does climate change affect health and what can health professionals do about it? These are the very questions we hope to answer here on Code Green, the Climate Smart Health Professional. I'm Natasha Sood, your host for today's episode. And we're so honored to have Dr. Gurab Basu with us here today to speak about climate change as a health equity and a human rights issue. Dr. Basu is a physician and the co-director of the Cambridge Health Alliance Center for Health Equity, Education, and Advocacy at Harvard Medical School and the School of Public Health. So to get started, um, Dr. Basu, what first got you interested in the field of climate change and health? Yeah, so, you know, <clears throat> I kind of identify a lot as um, as a human rights doctor and a global health doctor. And um, a lot of my background has been in working in kind of maternal child health stuff in, in rural settings um, and, and have been doing a lot of health equity medical education. But uh, climate change was something I cared a lot about and thought was really important. Um, but the uh, 2018 IPCC report, so the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, um, had a big report explaining the difference um, of impacts of uh, global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius versus 2 degrees Celsius. And that was truly kind of an awakening moment for me. And I, I still can really picture kind of reading the headline about it and then just kind of very dramatically understanding the implications for all the things I cared about. So I, I, I think there's people who have been working on this for decades and have understood this over time. And my experience of it was really this kind of thunderbolt of, of really understanding how all these things I care about in human rights and racial justice, that, that climate change was a fundamental threat to all the things I care about as a physician and um, someone um, working in kind of social justice circles. So um, that really kind of catapulted me into really wanting to study it and understand it better and its implications, particularly in health equity. Right. Okay. So when you read that IPCC report, what were the, the main high yield concepts that really stuck out to you? So when they explained that to hold warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, we need to decarbonize fully by 2050 and get about halfway there by 2030, that really hit me in terms of kind of urgency and how far we had to go. And then they also did a bunch of things of kind of explaining how the world would look different, how the planet would look different at 1.5 degrees Celsius versus two. So I think the communication of what they did in that scientific report was very helpful for me to realize the urgency and scope of, of the issue at hand. I mean, this is just incredible. And in 2018, you read the IPCC report and you you started to dive deep into climate change and its effects on health equity. And now just four years later, you are a really well-regarded expert in this field. You've launched the Climate and Health Organizing Fellowship at Harvard, amongst many other things. How did you inform yourself on climate change and health so quickly? Uh, like what resources did you use or classes did you utilize the most? Yeah, you, you know, I'll be honest with you. It was it was a really hard that first year. You know, for for like really a solid twelve months, it, it was really overwhelming for me, and it was really kind of consuming. And again, I, I kind of feel like I had like a um, 
a really intense kind of immersion into this because it, it really worried me. And I have, um, you know, I had a young son at that time and then my wife was pregnant and now my son's three and my daughter's one. And so I really was thinking about this, not just as a physician, but as a parent. So, you know, I, I just started reading a lot, you know, and I really just started studying and trying to get wrap my head around and I think there was a lot of things going on in that study. One was kind of learning content and understanding, um, you know, the implications of climate change. And so um, I started just kind of um, following like climate scientists. And, and I think it was important for me to like really anchor in science and to really read, uh, you know, um, the impressions of real experts in climate science. And I had two takeaways from that one. I'll never be a climate scientist. I have no idea how to do any of those modeling or, you know, to, to study atmospheric science. And there's no way I'd ever be able to do that. But I realized, listen, I want to just try to understand who are some really um, thoughtful experts, good communicators of climate science. And uh, I started doing that on social media and kind of reading the reports, uh, you know, scientists who were uh, part of the IPC reports and things like that. And that helped me just get a little sense of where we've been and where we're going. Um, but then I did, you know, really gravitate pretty quickly to the question of what value do I add to this work? And obviously a big part of my identity is as a doctor. And so quickly I kind of understood that it was going to be um, most useful for me to be acting like a doctor, talking like a doctor, explaining things about health uh, within this work. And, you know, I was struck at how central talking about health and health equity was. So, so I, you know, there's online courses, you know, um, at Harvard Sea Change, I, I took that. Um, the Yale course is really great as well. Um, I read some books and then really just tried to find a few people who I would follow and really kind of listen to their opinions. Wow, that's that's amazing. So we're going to drop all of the resources that Dr. Basu just mentioned in our show notes. Um, and, you know, I think that your process of self-education is familiar to a lot of us in the medical field who are passionate about climate change, because, you know, ultimately our hope is that climate is incorporated into more medical school curricula. Um, so that future professionals will be fully equipped with the knowledge that they need in order to make an impact right off the bat. Uh, so can you now explain a little bit more about how you see climate change as a health equity and a human rights issue? Yeah, so I think I really start from a place for all my work of just feeling that people have dignity and worth and value, right? And that everyone has just inherent uh, goodness, I think, and, and that they need to be seen and honored in their lives, you know? And I think we need to create a society and a world in which we take care of each other and we look out for each other. And in too many ways today and throughout our history, human beings have been harming each other. And so human rights for me is a legal framework acknowledging that dignity and worth and saying because people are people and they have value within them, they have rights. And those are rights that uh, are, are, are inherently, you know, given to people because they can feel we don't want people to suffer, we want people to do well. And so that that's always been valuable to me. And then so when you think about climate change, you start thinking about all these foundational things that climate change threats, and you realize that if people don't have access to nutrition, uh, you know, especially when they're children, 
how much that's going to impact their health and well-being. And if you don't have access to water, or if you're running away from natural disasters, or if you are smelling polluted air uh, because you are poor or a person of color, that strikes fundamentally at this notion that everyone has dignity and worth. And so, you know, I, I believe it's remarkable how much we are capable of as human beings and in human society. We have all the things we need to make sure people live dignified lives. Um, but unfortunately, too often we've created systems that aren't kind of worthy of people's dignity and worth. And so I, I'm kind of interested in talking about climate change as an issue of taking care of people, you know, making sure we take care of each other. And the piece that I missed for a long time, and now I realize is so interconnected with this, is taking care of our earth. So I, I feel that taking care of our earth, taking care of natural habitats and ecological stability is fundamentally the work of taking care of human beings as well, and that they're all interconnected. So we we know that you said that people of color are especially affected by access to clean water, polluted air, and many other climate effects. Can you talk about the relationship between race and climate and how structural racism can make communities more vulnerable to climate change? Throughout history, you know, over and over and over again, we have created systems that have caused racial injustice, you know, and that benefits some people and it harms other people. Um, and it's not rooted in this notion that everyone should have... Um, a life full of dignity and uh, you know access to to the basic resources that human beings should have. And so when 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 you see those structures happen, you see the interplay with climate change and the burning of fossil fuels. So for example, the the building of fossil fuel infrastructure is dramatically disproportionately built in communities of color, right? And exposure to issues like air pollution um, are dramatically um, uh, skewed towards communities of color. With my background in global health also, I think we need to increase the conversation about racial justice issues in a global sphere as well. And so the developing world has caused the dramatic, you know, dramatically a disproportionate amount of greenhouse gas emissions and burning of fossil fuels. And if you look at the United States, you know, since the Industrial Revolution, they have been by far the leader in historic emissions. But it's these poor coastal countries uh, that are are being hit the hardest, right? So that feels that bothers me a lot, you know, that these communities have done so little to cause this problem, but are uh, the recipients of so much of that harm. So that's structural racism to me, right there. That we've built uh, energy systems, that we've built transportation systems, that we've built food systems that benefit some people and harm other people. And when you do that analysis, you see that uh, a major lens of that um, dichotomy is, is structural racism, you know, that, that we have organized the world in which some people benefit and some people are harmed, and that race is central to the way that we've organized things. Um, and there's a whole bunch of, you know, historical reasons for that. Absolutely. And, and I think that the COVID-19 pandemic has really underscored 
uh, the systemic issues you're talking about. Um, and, and so like, you know, going into that, what aspects of medical infrastructure do you think need to change in order to improve these conditions, especially in the face of climate change? Yeah, I mean, we, we really have this moment of transformation in front of us, right? And this has been so painful and so hard. Um, and, you know, health professionals have been in the middle of seeing just how much suffering there's been. And it's, um, the, it's been very traumatic, right, for the world. And so we have to create a new world. And I think we have to have the courage to have the imagination and the determination to really dig into the roots of a lot of our problems. Um, and what I would say is that sometimes it can feel overwhelming to be thinking in transformative ways, right? Oh my gosh, there's so much work to do. We have to change um, the whole infrastructure of the world to address climate change. We have to uh, acknowledge and reckon with this history of uh, trauma, of racial injustice, it's hard to know where to start. But I think that we've got to just have some fundamental guiding principles of like what, why, you know, why we are making certain policies and, um, you know, what, what is motivating it to do that. I think what COVID has done for us is shown us the interconnectedness of all these issues. So while sometimes it can feel overwhelming, I think also one thing that we should take heart in is that done right, we can help so many different things at once. So for example, um, when we are ending the use of fossil fuels and replacing it with renewable energies, we should be doing, we should recognize the fact that communities of color have been impacted disproportionately by these emissions and particulate matter. And we should be pulling that fossil fuel out infrastructure out of those communities first, right? We should be recognizing that tree canopies and heat islands are uh, disproportionately in communities of color, that um, places like Chelsea, Massachusetts, which is uh, where a lot of my patients are from, have this intersection of being a COVID uh, uh, you know, epicenter, having a ton of fossil fuel infrastructure that's from transportation and you know that the Chelsea River is polluted. So if we go in there and we pull this infrastructure out and, and replace it with clean energy, that's a racial justice uh, victory. Um, that is a victory for the planet. Um, and so I guess what I'm trying to say is that as we're thinking about how to get out of these dark times, we've got to think about the ways we can be improving a bunch of things at once. And, and the good news is that, you know, climate policy is the heart of, of how we can be creating kind of a new way forward. All right, so I'd like to transition a bit into clinical practice. Um, so as a primary care doctor, do you ever incorporate climate change into into the conversations with your patients? And what, what does that look like for you? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's like any other kind of risk factor for patients, right? And I think that we are um, increasingly getting better at kind of tying uh, connecting the dots about a lot of this. So one thing I'll say is I talk to my colleagues a lot. You know, so for example, um, had a colleague one time say, oh my gosh, you know, the cases of Lyme are increasing significantly. And I said, well, you know, we really got to think about the implication of planetary health and the increase in Lyme, right? And so how ecological uh, health impacts human health and, and diseases like Lyme. So th that's, you know, I, I do really believe that once you can start seeing that, then you start connecting the dots a lot. So I speak to a lot, uh, to my colleagues a lot. And then I, I explain in clear terms, you know, I think that we, we, you know, that's part of our job is to 
synthesize science, you know, distill it out and explain it in simple terms. And that's, you know, just the way I would with a medication or a diagnosis. You know, it's really the same way I talk about climate threats and, you know, to talk about, hey, you know, a, um, a, a dangerously hot day is coming up uh, next week and you've got cardiovascular disease and diabetes. And so this is why I get concerned about those implications on for you. And so do you have an air conditioner? You know, um, or do you have a plan, you know, of um, someone to call if you're not feeling well that day? Um, you know, one of the things that bothers me the most, I think, in terms of um, severe heat exposure is the implications on pregnancy, you know. And so um, I think we've got to start thinking and talking about things like that, that should we be counseling um, people uh, about severe heat exposure. And unfortunately, we don't have enough you know, enough guidelines and kind of recommendations to support us in those kind of things. And I think that we could do a lot better of supporting kind of climate communication and its implications on health for our patients. I agree. You know, I mean, I think that this really needs to be incorporated a lot more into clinical visits. Um, and from a health equity standpoint, it's also important to remember that not all patients will be able to, you know, for example, access air-conditioned um, settings during an extremely hot day. So how do you suggest communicating with patients, especially vulnerable to extreme heat, and aiding those patients in finding cooling resources if they don't have immediate access to any? Well, we're working on exactly that now. So I think that's an important next step is how do we, so some ideas is that should we have a registry of people we'd be worried about on a very hot day? And so should we be outreaching them, right? Uh, you know, I'm not going to be seeing a bunch of patients who, you know, probably I should be communicating with. Should we have a way of saying, oh, a, a very hot day, dangerously hot day is coming up. We should give them a call and say, hey, you know, if you, um, if you are not feeling well inside your house or you don't have an air conditioner, here's the cool, uh, the closest cooling center, you know, something like that. Um, I, I think that we're, we don't have the workflows for those kind of things right now. Um, and we should, you know, on uh, days of um, bad uh, air quality. You know, are we talking to people who have respiratory disease and explaining that, um, you know, you should consider maybe staying home and things like that. You know, California um, now gets that, right? The wildfires have caused such dramatically poor air quality that I think it's probably much more in the consciousness of like the healthcare delivery system in California now uh, to be explaining those messages. But um, I don't think it's permeated kind of my clinical setting yet. Got it. Okay. So now transitioning a little more into advocacy, you know, we really loved the article that you wrote a couple months ago for Scientific American. Um, it really underscores the need for health professionals to be at the front lines of systems change. So can you speak to why it is so important for health professionals, especially to be doing this work? Yeah, I, the way I think about it is that, you know, I, I love my patients, right? I love my patients as a doctor and as a parent. I love my kids and I love kids generally, you know, and I, so those are the two hats I really wear in my climate work is that I really want people to do well. And um, what I know, I love being a doctor. I love being a clinician. I love taking uh, care of people in a clinical setting. And um, that's like kind of the foundation of my work. But I also know that 
it's just not enough for me to continue to see people getting hurt and sick and having to come to the doctor and take medicine or some kind of treatment plan. I really want people to be healthy. And I know that health and disease is produced in the world, right? It doesn't happen, you know, magically when people enter into a healthcare system. And so if I want people to be healthy and if I want them to, you know, have a society that honors their dignity and worth, then we've got to talk about systems and structures. And um, a, a pretty quick analysis of that shows that systems work for some people and they don't work for others. And that's not by accident. You know, policies are made, uh, economic policy, social policy are made um by people for reasons. And so uh, I, for me, it is being a good doctor to say, hey, this policy is going to impact my patient poorly. And I'm not okay with that. I want them to be healthy and I can understand the kind of downstream impacts of, of this kind of policy implication. And I think too often, a lot of those policy discussions happen without a scientific base without understanding the implications on people's health. And so I think it's really critical for healthcare professionals to enter the public forum and to uh, be a part of decision making because it's, it just has such a profound out, uh, outcomes on, on our patients. You're so right. And, and that was beautifully put. And, you know, this is making me think back to my first year of medical school. I knew that I was passionate about climate, but I didn't know how to find my voice. And then and then when I did, like, what, what do I do with it? Um, so what's your advice for students who want to start to engage in health equity and climate advocacy? Where should they start? Well, I think the other thing that's hard is that, you know, training is so tough, right? And a lot of you are involved in that right now is that it's um, you know, there's a lot of studies showing that during medical training, uh, people burn out and they lose connection to their values and their inspiration and why they kind of started in a vocation of wanting to heal, right? So, so we've got to ask some critical questions about how we train people um, and um, what we should be including and what we shouldn't. Um, and for that matter, we should be thinking about how we create careers, right? And how if we want people to be good advocates, we've got to give them some time and space to do that. Um, but I, I think that um, doing the work of, of staying close to your values and really declaring them and um, thinking about ways in which you can work on things that really speak to who you are and how you want to develop as a professional and kind of your vision of the world is really important. And I totally appreciate that um, it might be that you're on tense, intense rotations for three months straight and then you have an elective week or something. But I do think that it, even in those small pockets, um, it's really valuable to dive in and do that work or to be thinking about, do I want to take a year off at a certain you know period in, in my um, professional training? Um, so just really, you know, I think it's pretty sacred, that thing inside of each one of us that really makes us come alive and believe uh, that, you know, a better world is possible, that people can be healthy, that we can have an equitable society. That's like some special stuff, you know, and you got to guard that and be um, very protective of that. And, and I think, you know, many people know what are the things that really stoke that fire and get you really inspired. Um, and so 
just being close to that and, and thinking kind of really strategically about how to engage in communities and work and projects that help you do that. And, and I think, you know, getting involved in small projects, um, going, writing an op-ed, going to your state house when you're able to, being a part of organizations are all really valuable ways of, of cultivating advocacy skills until you're able to dive in more, hopefully, um, in your career. That would be incredible to have an entire elective devoted to advocacy and finding causes that drive us. Um, you know, so many of us look up to you as a physician mentor in the field, um, but we also know that this work is really demanding and burnout is so real and talked about so often. So how do you manage all of this, being a parent, being a primary care doctor, while also teaching in a medical school and, and doing advocacy? What does your week look like? Like, how do you maintain personal boundaries as you do this work? Yeah, I, thanks for that. I, I really appreciate those kind comments. Um, it, it, it's not easy, right? They feel, you know, especially in the midst of COVID, it's been so overwhelming, right? And it just feels like, um, I think both COVID and climate do that is that the bigness of these challenges feels so much that, you know, you could go full throttle forever and still feel like you're not doing nearly enough. Right. And so I do think that it's really important to, again, kind of really kind of know that light within you and that the world kind of needs you to be holding that light within you. And that means taking care of yourself, you know, and, and that has a real different orientation to how you put good things into the world. Um, and if, if you're going full throttle in a way in which, you know, culturally in medicine, I think sometimes we're pushed to do, um, you're, you're gonna, it's gonna be hard to really kind of honor that kind of light within you. Um, and I, I think that ultimately that doesn't get you to where you want to be. It doesn't feel good. It's not ultimately, you know, a, a deep kind of, connection with with this work and with yourself. And so, you know, one thing that I've really kind of anchored on is I do think that all of this work is um, about relationships. You know, it's about relationship to the earth, to each other and future generations. And um, and part of that is being that relationship to yourself and that connection to, to everything that really drives you. So um, I don't have any, you know, profound things to say about how to take care of yourself. You know, I do meditation and that's really important to me. And um, I try to be pretty firm about, you know, when um, uh, is family time and, and not, um, not compromising on that. Um, but but it's it's a constant challenge, you know, because you feel like this work really matters and the stakes are high. Um, and so um, I, but I do believe in like equilibrium and balance um, as being a really important factor in this. Uh, for my own career, the way that um, I kind of um, kind of break up my time is I'm about a third um, primary care. So, um, well, I should say a third clinical. Uh, and part of that is primary care right now. And part of that is COVID work. Um, and then it's hard to break down uh, the rest of it, but the rest of it is a mix of running the center that I run, co-direct, uh, called the Center for Health Equity, Education and Advocacy, which runs a bunch of health equity courses uh, and kind of climate work. Um, so, um, you know, it mixes around and, you know, every day looks very different and all that. Um, and there's kind of teaching um, the, the various courses and, and precepting clinically and all that kind of stuff in there. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think that we've got to 
really know those things that bring us joy. And, you know, I, I think a lot of the reason um, climate change can feel so scary um, and uh, we worry a lot about it and there's a lot of anxiety about the impacts of climate change is because the world is beautiful, right? The earth is beautiful. There's so much uh, abundance and richness in the world. And I think we all um, know that there's a lot at stake because there's so many great things that are possible. Um, and so I do think it's a critical part of jumping into this hard work and digging in and fighting a good fight is to stay really connected to those things that we're fighting for, you know, and to have a vision of what the world can be and being very assertive. I feel very assertive about this, that I, there's nothing holding us back from having those, that beautiful future. Uh, and it's totally ours to take. Uh, there's obviously a lot of major barriers, um, but I really believe we can make, you know, tremendous progress um, uh, towards that. Wow, you just, Dr. Basu, you have an incredible way with words. I mean, seriously, I feel so inspired and empowered right now, as I'm sure our listeners do as well. And speaking of our listeners, you've done really powerful storytelling workshops over the past couple of years. And it was so enlightening to learn how storytelling for advocacy can really help grow our movement for climate justice among students and health professionals. Can you share a bit about what you focus on during these workshops? Yeah, I, I think storytelling is so important. And so, you know, I, I, as a doctor, a lot of my work is analytical and data-based and evidence-based as it should be, you know, and there's, um, it's critical to be deeply rooted in a science-based, evidence-based approach to, to medicine. Um, in terms of doing the systems work, I think that storytelling is so critical because um, change doesn't happen when you over-intellectualize why there's a problem. Change happens when you feel upset, uh, when you feel like something is unacceptable, when you feel like something is wrong and it impacts things that you care and love about, and you're ready to stand up for it. You're, you're kind of activated to kind of shake off inertia and make change. And that you got to dig in a little bit to be ready to do that. And emotion really helps us do that. I think emotion um, does two things. When you feel emotion, it's almost like a compass. You can like look inside of you and be like, what is the value underneath this emotion that makes me feel this emotion? You know, what is it that I care about deep inside that's making you react in this way? And then emotion also, it stimulates um uh, an activation of, of, of action, you know, it makes us do something. Um, and so if we're trying to get a group of people and we feel a sense of shared purpose, um, and, and feel emotion about it, I think we're much more likely to, to act on it. And so storytelling, I think, uh, is just rooted in an expression of emotion, you know, and, and I think that's critical and something that I think health professionals, are very well positioned to do, but don't do so well, um, is, is, you know, really think about writing and, and storytelling. Absolutely. I mean, these are such incredible tools to use as we engage in advocacy and address structural change. Uh, so Dr. Basu, if you had one point that you would like our listeners to walk away from, um, from this episode, what would it be? Well, let me, let me say two. One is that I, I think it's critical for us to make the connections between health equity and climate change. And I think for me, that is such an important vehicle to be thinking about this 
both from a health lens and through a justice lens. Um, so there's, I think, just a, a profoundly rich lens uh, to bring to this work if we think about the connection of climate change and health equity. And, and the one other is that I think that climate change challenges us really to think about our interconnectedness, you know, in our common humanity um, and how we can better take care of each other, you know. And I think that climate change is a reckoning in the ways in which we have had broken relationships with the earth, each other and future generations. And that kind of that deep relational work and um, being human with one another, another and taking care of each other better is going to be a big part of moving forward. And, and that can feel overwhelming, but it, I think it's also transformative. And I think there's a whole bunch of great things happening right now. And um, I, I, you know, I, I do feel positivity in my heart and kind of determination uh, uh, moving forward and, and, and that we can all find our place in this work. And do you have a top book and or Twitter account that you would like to share? So one one book that's been really helpful for me is uh, one called Planetary Health, uh, which is co-edited by Sam Myers and Howard Frumpkin, who are two really amazing um, environmental health doctors. And then um, for Twitter, you know, I, I really like following these climate scientists. So, you know, someone like uh, Ayanna Elizabeth uh, Johnson has been really um, taught me a ton. You know, people like John Foley, you know, have been great about kind of project draw, draw down kind of climate uh, solutions orientations. So I, I would say that that's been really helpful for me to kind of study people I, I really respect in the climate science world. Thank you so much. I was actually on a meeting the other day and we went around asking people which Twitter accounts they should follow. And someone said to definitely follow you and the chat blew up because everyone was like, yes, absolutely. I mean, listen, I want to be really honest. That, like I, I'm learning really on the fly here. Like, honestly, like I, you know, I, that's very kind of you guys to say, but like, um, I'm like total like work in progress of like learning this stuff, you know, and, and there's a lot of ways I can get a lot better at this and all that. So like, I, I don't think the climate like work needs a brilliant expert in all the things. Like, I think we just have to say, hey, we've got to care about this. I really like my theory of change is like, we just got to care about it. And, um, and, I, and I think that's like what the youth movement's done and like, you know, is just put it on the spotlight and like put like responsibility. We've got, I say that because we have like all the information we need. That's such a good point. And I feel that most students and professionals that I've talked to even a few years ago didn't know about most relationships between climate change and health. But the fact that we're in a place where it's more recognized um, in the health field is incredibly huge. And, and I know that it can seem overwhelming because there's so much information out there about climate change. But learning everything is definitely, at least to me, not the goal. It's knowing enough to really bring people together and to find common values and then really organize to fight against this. Yeah, totally. And I mean, I mean, frankly, for you guys as students to be doing so much at this point, I mean, you know, you're like 10, 15 years ahead of me of like, you know, doing all this work during school. So, you know, you guys are, I, I really, I'm not saying to say it. I think you guys are going to be total like leaders of this movement, you know, into the future and when you go into residency and all that. So uh, we'll do it together. Wow. Thank you for saying that. I, I really hope so. And, and I hope that we can build on what we've done as a movement to really make strides in the next few years. 
Um, Dr. Basu, I know that this is an episode that I will personally be listening to many times. You've been able to articulate some very key data and emotional pulls relating to climate and health. And I hope that our listeners follow your work going forward so that we can all continue to learn from you. Thank you so much for being here with us today and talking with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. And that's all for today. Thank you for tuning in to Code Green, the climate smart health professional. See you next time. This podcast is co-hosted and produced by Natasha Sood and Sarah Shu. This episode was sound edited by Liana Hagas. We have Julia Rothschild on Twitter and Maddie Tapman on Instagram. This podcast series would not have been possible without the support from Medical Students for a Sustainable Future and the Global Consortium on Climate and Health Education. We also want to acknowledge the indigenous lands on which we are recording from. I'm recording from Hershey, Pennsylvania, which sits on the traditional homelands of the Susquehanna tribe. Dr. Basu is speaking to us from Boston, Massachusetts, which sits on the traditional homeland of the Massachusetts tribe. And lastly, we want to hear from you. Just send us an email at codegreenpod at gmail.com or DM us on social media. Our Instagram is at codegreenclimatepod and our Twitter is codegreenpod. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this show. Thank you for tuning in to Code Green, the Climate Smart Health Professional. We'll see you next time.